Welcome back to another episode of Dazed and Disturbed, a show where we talk about the horrors of the universe and the thing that makes our heads go fuzzy. I'm your host, Danny de los Monstros, and, you know, I was thinking, hey, 420 really hasn't ended for me yet. I mean, I haven't stopped partying since, well, 419. So, I thought, what a way to satisfy my cravings than to see what other people were craving for before they died. Hooray, we're getting back to our bleak episodes. On today's episode, I wanted to see some of the last meals from Texas death row inmates. Why? I don't know, I got my hands on this book called Meals to Die For, and one thing led to another, and we're here now. So, grab yourselves a nice snack or ice cold beverage, and let's dig in. Oh, that kind of sounds fucked up to say that now that I'm thinking about it. So a little bit about this book. It was written by an ex-prisoner, then turned head chef of the Huntsville Penitentiary down south in the good old state of Texas. His name was Brian D. Price, and he was also known as the Death Row Chef. He earned his name among the prisoners because he took it upon himself to prepare the last meals of nearly 200 inmates. And the reason that this guy took up the task is because, well, nobody really wanted to do it. And it also gave him a little extra money for him inside the prison. He would prepare these meals within reason of with what the prison allowed. Like, uh, let me give you an example for the last meal requested. So somebody wanted 10 pieces of large deep fried jumbo shrimp, two pieces of garlic bread, two pieces of fried chicken, one tossed salad with Thousand Island dressing, and one chocolate milkshake. Shrimp isn't allowed in the prison, so Brian would do his best to accommodate in order to send these people off to a happy place. In an interview he did with the Discovery Channel, he stated that the reason that he prepared these meals with such love and passion is that he imagined doing these things for his loved ones or for his friends. The first meal of a death row chef he made for a prisoner, the prisoner actually sent him a message back stating that the food was delicious and that he really appreciated it. It spoke so much to Brian that the last thing that the person ever thought about was him, the guy who cooked his meal. To me personally, I mean, he's probably digging a little too deep into it, but I mean, he wrote a book, I haven't. So there's that. And before you think this guy is messed up for serving brutal murderers and rapists with that same kind of love and compassion that he would for a loved one, he has chosen to steer clear of, of, of some requests just because of the nature of the crime. Uh, for example, there was a inmate named Leopold Nervaez Jr. who murdered his ex-girlfriend and her siblings inside of the victim's parents' mobile home. Brian said that he actually knew the father and how could he bring himself to, you know, talk to the dad and say, hey man, I actually cooked him a really great meal to his face. That to him seemed a little messed up. So he said, no, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna avoid this request. I'm just gonna choose to stay out of it. But in that particular case, Nervaez actually declined the last meal anyways and just asked for a coffee. He wrote this book slash cookbook slash crime documentary as somewhat of a journal of his time behind bars in the Huntsville prison. And a lot of these recipes sound really fucking good. Uh, yes, yeah, some of the cases are terrible, but again, yeah, the food sounds fucking delicious. So on that, let's move on to the prisoners and their last meal requests, shall we? So how I think I'm gonna run this is that I'm gonna talk about their crime, 
how long they were in prison for, what was their last words, and how old were they when they died. And then after all that, we'll talk about their last meal. All right. So we're going to start off with Earl Russell Bayringer. His crime is that he murdered a 22-year-old Army lieutenant named Daniel Mayer Jr. and his fiancée, Janet or Jeanette Hancock. The reason that this crime took place was that Janet recognized Earl as one of her classmates at the University of Texas, and after which he fatally shot her, and you know, the story goes on from there. Him and his partner were prominently picked up by the police, and his partner wanted a plea to testify against Earl in order for his partner to get a lighter sentence. Earl was the one who was you know, obviously killed. This guy was in prison for 3,177 days, and his last words were, let's give him a, uh, let's give him a Texas voice. Let me, let me give all these guys a, t- uh, a different kind of voice, so it's easier. So, excuse me. <clears throat> it's a good day to die. I walk into here like a man, and I'm leaving here like a man. And then, which afterwards, he turned to the, fi- the families of the victim and said, I'm sorry for any pain I caused you. If my death gives you peace, then so be it. To which then he added that he wanted to thank the Dallas Cowboys for all the entertainment from over the years. Yeah, what a guy. He was 33 years old when he passed away, and his last meal request was a large portion of scrambled eggs, two pieces of toast, gravy, two sausages, and grape juice. Yeah, I don't know if the mic picked it up, but my stomach was just gurgling. I probably should have eaten dinner before I got this. I picked this one because, uh, dude, I love breakfast for dinner. It's, it sounds really, really good. And for our next criminal, we have James Carl Lee Davis. And his crime was on March 2nd of 1984, in the middle of the night, James snuck into a house that was being guarded by a babysitter. James found the sleeping babysitter and began beating her over the head with a metal pole. The oldest kid that was being babysat was Yvette Johnson, a 15-year-old who heard her cousin screaming. And then when she went to go investigate, Yvette was grabbed, beaten, and then assaulted by the man. He then went into another room of the house where he found Tyron Johnson and Tony Johnson. Both were six and four. He then proceeded to kill both of them by bludgeoning them over the head with the same metal pole. There was one more person in the house, which was the youngest of the four siblings, who heard all this commotion. He pretended to keep sleeping, which ended up saving his life. James fled the scene and was later caught by police, and then the youngest boy and the babysitter who survived testified against this guy, which this is how they nabbed James for the murder of Yvette Johnson. They couldn't get him on Tony and Tyron's murder because he was already being sentenced to death, so the judge thought it wasn't necessary. He was in jail for 4,551 days, and that his last words were to his brother and to his friend, who were both there showing support for him, and he said, you're in my heart, be well my friends, I'm ready. All right, so his last meal was steak, eggs over easy, toast, punch, and a pack of cigarettes. Marlboro cigarettes, to be more precise. If there's any sort of justice besides the the, the death penalty, he didn't get his Marlboro cigarettes. Mm-hmm. That sounds disingenuous. 
editor, maybe edit that part out. Ah, we'll find out in edit in post. We'll find out in post. And for our next guy, we have William Price Davis. Now, his crime was that on June 2nd of 1978, he robbed the Red Wing Ice Cream Company out in Texas and killed the manager with a pistol, point blank in the head. He ran off with $712 and a shotgun that was behind the counter. He was then later identified by three company drivers. He was in jail for 7,665 days. And his last words were, I'd like to give thanks to the God Almighty by those graced, by whose grace I am saved through his son, Jesus Christ, without whom I'd be nothing today. Because of his mercy and grace, I've come a long way. And I would like to say to the Lang family, Lang being the manager that he shot and killed, how truly sorry I am in my soul and in my heart of hearts for the pain and misery that I've caused you with my actions. I'm truly sorry. And to my family, I'd like to extend the same apology for the same pain that I've put you through. And when the needle was put in his arm and the chemical cocktail was being pumped into his veins, his last words were to actually to the executioner. And he said, how about them cowboys? He closed his eyes and then finally passed away. And then afterwards, he actually donated his body to science. He was executed on September 14th of 1999, and he was 42 years old. Now, for his last meal, he requested fried chicken, the drumsticks, a bowl of chili, a bowl of cheese, which I, I think it's, I think the cheese was for the chili, five rolls, two bags of barbecue chips, the Zaps brand, six pack of Coke, one pack of Paul Mall cigarettes, and one lighter, but the cigarettes and the lighter were actually denied by the, what is it called? The TGCJ. And in the book, it actually has his handwritten last meal request. So you can see he's got pretty neat handwriting, honestly, better than mine. Everything's in capitals though. I can't stand that. See, I'm reading these and thinking, some of these guys don't actually deserve to get these kind of meals. And I know, not all criminals have violent offenses and some death row inmates actually don't have, like I said, violent uh, offenses. Some that do, they kind of got it lucky. And I, I see where Brian D. Price is coming from. I mean, born again, religious or not, it doesn't excuse the fact that your crime was your crime. You shouldn't have done it in the first place. I mean, I guess that's kind of harsh of me to say because what I'm not in their shoes and maybe they do actually feel remorse for what they did. But I got a guy here by the name of Domingo Cantu Jr. On June 25th, 1988, he sexually assaulted and slayed a 94-year-old Suda Eller Jones in Dallas. He then beat her head on the concrete sidewalk outside a residence of 1139 North Madison. Miss Jones died from multiple head injuries and Cantu was arrested afterwards from running from the scene. They can't find his education level. By the time of his offense, he was 20 years old. He asked for, all right, this is exactly what I'm talking about. He asked for fried chicken, 12 pieces, both white and dark meat, mashed potatoes with gravy, 14 jalapenos. This guy's being specific. Orange juice, buttermilk biscuits, chocolate cake, and strawberry ice cream. He spent 11 years on death row before being executed at the age of 31. Uh, and this guy didn't have a last statement, but still, I don't know. I There are some of these criminals that are kind of unforgiven, unforgiven, religious or not. And if you're born again or whatever, 
that's just me. I don't know. I don't know about you. You might feel differently. And you could tell me, maybe you can re-educate me and, and see things from a different perspective. But the food did sound really, really good. For our next guy, we got David Martin Long. And this is actually something interesting that I was listening to in the documentary with Brian D. Price. He slayed three people in his in a giant crime spree. He killed Donna Sue Jester by killing her with a hatchet. Same thing with Dolpha Lauren Jester, who was 64 at the time of her death, and Laura Lee Owens, a 21 or a 20-year-old drifter from Florida. In his trial, he actually said that it was a satanic experience that he the reason why he committed the triple homicide and that he actually during the trial admitted that he murdered his former boss in Bayview in 1983 and a gas station attendant in San, Bern San Bernardino, California in 1978. Well, he's he came here to California. He had the education level of a 13 year old. I'm sorry, his education level was 13 years. At the time of his offense, it was 33. So what I was remembering about this documentary was that he was actually saving a bunch of, I think, sleeping pills or pain pills or something like that. And he was hiding them. And the day he was he was uh, executed, he oh, the day he was going to be executed, he took all of them. And what they did was they rounded him up, gurgling and everything. They flew him to a uh, to a hospital where they revived him. And in his last meal, I'm going to do this a little out of order. In his last meal, he asked for four bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwiches, some iced tea and some potato chips. And... Brian D. Price was saying in the interview that he was like trying to frantically make these. But when this guy got back from the hospital, they were saying like, oh, hey, uh, don't don't worry about making the the, the BLTs because this guy doesn't even know where he's at. So they revived him, but he was so out of his mind that they didn't know. They just needed him conscious enough to be alive. I think they just needed him conscious enough to be alive for the actual execution. And for our next guy, we got David Allen Castillo. His crime was that on July 14th, 1983, he robbed a cashier at the party house liquor by the name of Clarinso Champion. Or Champion. Got it. He was 59 years of age at the time of his death, and Castillo stabbed Champion in the abdomen, chest, and then slashed his face with a long bowie knife. You know, it's those knives that Crocodile Dundee has. Champion died a week later. Castillo lived in jail for 5,475 days, and his last words were, keep it brief here, just wanted to say, uh, family, take care of yourself, uh, look at this thing as a learning experience, everything happens for a reason, we all know what just really, we all know what really happened here, there are some things you just can't fight, little people always seem to be squashed, it happens so just, so just got to take the good with the bad, there is no man, there is no free form, there is no man that is free from all evil, nor any man that is so evil to be worth nothing. But it's all part of life. And my family, take care of yourself. Tell my wife I love her. Okay, I'm ready. He was executed on, seven, on September 14, 1999, right before the new millennia. He was 34 years old. And this guy got the whole Taco Bell munchie meal. He got the whole menu. He wanted... 24 soft shell tacos, six enchiladas, six chalupas, two whole onions, five jalapenos, two cheeseburgers, one chocolate milkshake, and one quart of milk with a side of a pack of Marlboro cigarettes, which were obviously denied. 
right. I'm going to start off this time with the guy's food. His last meal request was fried chicken, barbecue ribs, a baked potato, green salad with Italian dressing, chocolate cake, chocolate ice cream with a thick chocolate milkshake or malt and iced tea. So the guy who wanted all of this food was Joseph John Cannon. And his crime was that he murdered his court-appointed attorney's sister after the attorney took him in. This guy, John Joseph Cannon, had been in and out of jail for so long that David David Carabin, his court-appointed attorney, felt sorry for him. So he actually took him in with where he and his sister lived. Cannon said that he found guns in a bedroom one day and just went crazy. He shot the sister named Ann C. Walsh about shit seven times. And afterwards, he decided that he wanted to sexually assault her dead body. But as soon as the seven shots were heard, the police were called and swarmed in immediately and arresting John Joseph Cannon. He was in jail for 7,665 days, almost as... Wow, actually, that's as, that's as almost as long as William Price Davis. His last words were, I'm sorry for what I did to your sister. It isn't because I'm going to die. All my life I've been locked up and I could have never forgiven what I've done. I'm sorry for all of you and I love all... I'm sorry. Okay, there's a lot of spelling errors in this book. Like, Brian D. Price spelled Stephen King S-T-E-V-E-N versus Stephen King is spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N. So a lot of this is either what the people said because they're you know they're about to die so they're just trying to say anything or there's just spelling errors left and right but it, it, it makes it authentic you know so let me try this again the guy's last words were i am sorry for what i did to your sister it isn't because i'm gonna die all my life i've been locked up and i could never forgive what i've done i'm sorry for all of you wow i'm sorry for all of you and i love all thanks for supporting me since i was small thank you god all right he said all right he was executed on April 22nd, 1998, and he was 38 years old. Again, some of these people seem like they don't deserve to get all this food, maybe like one or two things, but man, this guy got a smorgasbord of food. If it wasn't because I'm high right now, I feel more sorry for this, uh, for Ann C. Walsh, but I'm really getting hungry now, so I gotta, I gotta wrap this episode up soon. And for our last guy, we're gonna go with Kenneth Allen McDuff. So this guy was a real psycho that should have been put away for good. This guy was a serial killer and then he and his case was interesting because he was he got out and got lucky because the system had changed from the 60s, 70s to the 80s multiple times. So due to one technicality or another, he was let go out of prison. So it all starts in 19, I think it was 1966, where he committed his first crime in the town of Rosebud, where he murdered a girl and a boy, both 17 and 16, and then he murdered and raped a 15-year-old girl, and then strangled her to death with a broomstick. He was then tried and sentenced to death, although his fam their family wanted him to be in life in prison, so he never ever had to get out and never got that satisfaction of getting a, a quick and, and painless death. So this is where the first technicality happened, where it saved his life. The Supreme Court saw that the death penalty was too cruel, so they actually ended up putting a stop to it. So Kenneth got off th that time as well. And then luck would have it where, because the death penalty is gone, 
the Texas prison system was getting way too over overwhelmed, overpacked. It was getting too packed. They were being packed in like sardines. So the so Texas decided, you know what, we're gonna release some criminals. Does and and regardless of their history. And Kenneth got his name in in the in the runnings to get out of prison, and he actually managed to get the lottery and got out. So now he's on back on the streets. So lots of people, including Brian the the author of the story were actually concerned they were thinking this guy just murdered three individuals and they were letting him back on the street regardless this was all written in an author's note and this is where brian was kind of saying like yeah this guy shouldn't have been released even the prison guards were surprised that kenneth was actually in the runnings to be released and when he got out they were kind of all the guards said to themselves that he was going to be back one way or another this guy's going to be back so in 1989 he was back on the streets of Rosebud and people knew this guy by his face and his name. So people shut themselves inside their houses knowing that this boogeyman was on the streets roaming. And he managed to get his hands on a knife and threatened a young guy, sending him back to jail only to be released once again on parole. The prison system, again, was so packed that they were like, no, you, you, we, we can't fit you in here. So just get on a parole. Don't do anything bad. So we know that this dude is already a crazed psychopath. And this is where the story gets bad. So in 1991, December 29th, a young Colleen Reed, she was about 28 years old, was outside washing her car with when Kenneth and his partner in crime, Hank, were out looking for drugs. Kenneth stopped and saw Colleen and he got out and grabbed her by the neck, throwing her in the backseat of the car, telling Hank to drive. Kenneth then assaulted and tortured this woman with a lit cigarette. And then the two eventually started switching places back and forth to continue to assault this woman. They both pulled out outside of, they both pulled over outside of town and then began insulting her outside the car where Kenneth tied her up with a shoelace and you know, everything was happening. Kenneth and Hank were assaulting her. Kenneth hit her really hard on one, at one point in time. And Hank let her testify to this, but he said that Kenneth hit her so hard that he thought he heard a limb snap. In order to get a response from Colleen, Kenneth like inhaled his cigarette as much as he could to get the, 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 the lit cigarette as hot as possible. And then he, he poked it on her to see if he'd get a reaction. There was no reaction. So Hank at this point was saying, you know what, let's just, let's let her go. We've done enough. Let's just get out of here. Kenneth said, no, get back in the car. And he, and he threw Colleen in the, in the trunk of the car. Kenneth then dropped off Hank at his house and then asked Hank for a pocket knife and a shovel and said that he was going to go finish things up with her. And Hank knew that this meant that Kenneth was going to go, you know, kill Colleen. So we're going to fast forward ahead a few months later where another woman by the name of Melissa Northrup, who was 26, disappeared. The police later linked Kenneth to the murder because of this MO of tying up his victims with a shoestring and also finding fingerprints and DNA all over the place. She was found 57 days later in a great in a gravel pit submerged in water. And when Kenneth was finally arrested once more, he was put on trial and he claimed his in, that he was innocent of these of these crimes. The entire time, even though there was DNA and fingerprints all over the crime scene and Hank testifying against him, he he reported that he was that he was innocent that he had nothing to do with these crimes that he was being framed 
Lots of interviewers and reporters came into the prisons in and out. And at the end of every interview, he kept con- he kept proclaiming that he was innocent. He was innocent. And he was innocent. But it was only until Kenneth's nephew was arrested for an unrelated but serious crime. That's when Kenneth finally came clean and confessed his murder of Colleen Reed, which, you know, landed him another li- n- another death penalty sentence. And to give his nephew a lighter sentence, he also told the police where the body of Colleen was since they never were able to find it in the first place. This guy spent 1,000, I'm sorry, 11,680 days in jail. And his last words were, I'm ready to be released, release me. He was 52 years of age when he passed away. And for his last meal, he wanted two T-bone steaks, french fries, a chocolate milkshake, a piece of coconut pie, and a Coke. Yummy. But yeah, that that was the one case that was... uh, when I was reading it, that I really wanted to do something on. And on that note, I think I'm going to end it right here. I'm getting a little hungry for talking about snacks and murder the entire day. But thank you once again. We are Days and Disturbed Podcast, and my name is Danny de los Monstros. I apologize for the format of this episode. It kind of came together last minute, but due to unforeseen circumstances, both physical and some events that were kind of out of my control, I had to put this episode together in place of another episode. Thank you so much, Violet, for helping with the last episode. I really, really need to give you a high five later when I see you. Anyways, I did want to do this episode with some of my my other hosts, but it was just such short notice that I decided, you know what, I think it's, uh, I think it'll be intimate just to be just us talking. So I really appreciate you coming back to listening to us again. If you want to message us for any topics or you have any ideas of what will make the show any better, please find us on our Twitter at Days and Disturb One, where I am very active on there. We have our Instagram at Days and Disturb Podcast. Our email is Days and Disturb Podcast at gmail.com. There you can actually message me directly and tell me any topics, ideas, or if you want to just talk, hey, I'm all ears. And we also have our Discord, which I'm the most active in, which is Days and Disturbed Podcast. The server ID, I'll probably write it on Twitter because I don't know it yet. Yes, I know. I should get that on lock, but uh, all right, everybody. Thank you so much once again for listening to us, and I love you. I kiss you. I kiss you again. Okay, (laughs) bye-bye. Okay, Paul, edit this entire episode out. Just fucking delete it. Just delete it right now. Paul, just write, hurry. If you have an itchy asshole, where do you go? Where do you go to itch it? I mean, I know where to go, I mean, but if you're in public, you can't itch it anywhere. You know what I mean? Hello everyone, this is your friendly neighborhood NPC, Paul Logan, and I'm here to talk to you about a new podcast that I'm adding to my network. I could do fat jokes because I was fatter than I am now, but now I'm kind of like slightly overweight, which is cool with me, but I want to get to know overweight. It's funny, it's crass, it's fantastic. And so that's the last image my wife's going to see me. I don't want to do that. My kid walks in, I got the double chin looking fat as fuck with the poison. You know, you ever see in the movies and shit, when you have poison, your eyes are wide awake, you know, your mouth is all fucking wide open, and your face is purple. But with the double chin, you ain't going to look cool. And it's hosted by a dear friend of mine, Mr. Alex Midnight. Podcast is called Midnight by the Bay. It's coming soon to a silver tongue near you.